Whether you're starting a game or starting your day, you need to pick a starting lineup, and you're going to want the starter from Jack Black. Loaded with the superior skincare the pros love, Kings fans can get the starter for just $10, shipping included. Available exclusively at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB, the starter has four of Jack Black's best-selling skincare and shave products, plus a full-sized intense therapy lip balm, SPF 25, in natural mint. Here's to the winning combination for 2022, the LA Kings and the starter from Jack Black. $10 plus free shipping, available at GetJackBlack.com with the code TEAMJB while supplies last. You're listening to an LA Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit LAKings.com slash podcast. Adrian Kempe over the line, Kopitar to Jersey, wins it! You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the LA Kings. Centering pass, Kempe redirect right on. Save, rebound, comes out the Dowdy, they score! Wow. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. I am Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. Scott Wheeler ranked the Kings prospect pool second overall recently for the Athletic. He joins me on this episode to justify his decision to bump the Kings from first all the way down to second. And of course, we talk about a number of those players in the prospect pool. But first, time to crown another King of the Week. Time to crown another King of the Week. And joining me this week from the fourth period, Dennis Bernstein. How are you doing today, Dennis? Doing great, Jess. Let's get to it. Now, uh, I mentioned it on Twitter, but I'll mention it here again. Uh, February 16th was the 10th anniversary of All the King's Men. Amazing. But you and I actually go back further. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were always more than willing to give us your time to come on the Hockeywood Insider, which preceded all. The yeah, 100 so. percent. It's 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 giving back. It's like, look, just there's enough room for everybody. Agreed. So, yeah, totally. I was happy back in the day and I'm thrilled for your success. I can't believe it's been 10 years. So, it's uh, insane. <laughs> it, it totally is. Yeah. To where we so, are uh, at this point, it's unbelievable. I thank you on Twitter, <laughs> but I'll thank you again here for all the all the free, free hours of work you've given me over the years. Absolutely <laughs> so, happy to do it, man. Appreciate it. So let's jump into it. Uh, so we start, everybody who listens now knows we do uh, Honorable Mention, then Runner Up, then King yes. of the Week. So we'll start out with the Honorable Mention. Uh, we'll start with you. Who you got? Honorable Mention is the uh, 2022 LA Kings point machine, mm-hmm. Trevor Moore. He all has right. been just <laughs> phenomenal um, in 2022. Just look, he's playing top six minutes. He's producing in the top six level. So me, honorable mention, I'll give to Trevor Moore. All right. I'm going to go with his line mate, uh, Philip Deneau, because I said it on Twitter. I, I meant it. He has become easily one of my favorite Kings of all time in yep. what, 50 short games. <laughs> um, <laughs> that line is a ton of fun to watch. I'm with you 100% on a thousand Oaks Trevor Moore pick. All right. Runner up then. Who have you got? Runner-up is the guy who, uh, he's the first guy to score multiple goals mm-hmm. in back-to-back days, consecutive days, since John Tonelli in 1989. Clearly a guy who's going to cash in at the end of the season. So to me, 23 goals in 47 games. Adrian Kempe is my uh, runner-up. Yeah, he he's... You know, there was, a, there was some talk that maybe he wasn't looking like himself since having come back from COVID. Um, right. With four goals in two games, I feel like, and really nice goals, like not not empty netters or, yes. you know, bounces off somebody's body. Like really nice goal scorers goals. Um, I, I like that pick. I'm going to go and with just, on, Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Before you do that. And he hushed the crowd. In Vegas. Yeah, that was fantastic. I know you must have loved that one. <laughs> I did. I missed it in the moment. Um, unfortunately, I was watching on TV. So as soon as he scored, I reached for my phone. 
And in that moment, I missed him shushing yeah. the crowd, but saw it on the replay. Fantastic. <laughs> Just fantastic. Um, my runner-up is going to be the captain, Andrzej Kopitar, um, okay. because quietly going about picking up five assists in three games this week and leads the team in scoring by a pretty wide margin again. And I talked about this on Twitter. I said that, I, you know, for whatever reason, the other day I started thinking to myself about um, different kinds of uh, game shows that there are. And and how some people, you know, like, for example, I feel like I'd be pretty decent at Jeopardy, but I am terrible at Wheel of Fortune. Got it. I'm just sure. awful at Wheel of Fortune. Um, and they're just totally different skill sets, right? Totally. 100%. Completely different type of, you know, and like, and so I started thinking about hockey players and because I, I was specifically thinking about Kopitar because I was muttering to myself, he's such a smart player in my mind. Yeah. Like, to me, that is totally. what is that has been his strength. I mean, not that he doesn't have an incredible shot and puck protection and all, you know, like he's good at a ton of different things, but he just knows how to play the game in a way that I think is sort of criminally underrated. Um, And so I don't know, I haven't quite yet figured out which game show that would make him good at, but, (laughs) um, but there is a good at chess though, right? Because he would be the pieces correctly. You're right. His reads are exceptional. He doesn't really look if he gets beat. He gets beat like, on a rush off the rush or something like that. But when it's a positional play, he doesn't, he doesn't hit that's and back to your other guy. That's why this team is so good in the middle. They have two of the smartest centers that can read plays in the league without question skill aside. Like they don't get, they're rarely look. Sometimes you're out of position, Jess, but like these guys positionally reading plays, understanding where gaps are. They told their hockey IQs, are just among the best in the league without question. Yeah, and I'm not going to get into it right now, but I've become really, really fascinated by the kind of season that Kopitar's having, and I've been looking at it a lot for a future mm-hmm. episode. Anyway, uh, so King of the Week, who do you have for the actual King of the Week? Okay, um, the heart and soul of this team. His speech, if you saw the speech or the interview with Carlin Bade at the end of the second period, like Drew Doughty, will that look? I get it's Arizona, but just that they needed to win that <laughs> yeah, game for sure. Like that was a really important game that undoes, and he even said it that would have undone what they did in Vegas the night before. You like know, Drew has, yeah, yeah he, he willed that team to a victory. That's the Drew Doughty that we know that won cups, not the guy who was a minus 64 to last. <laughs> this is the guy that that is front and center, like must have went into the room after two and said, Hey guys, we're winning this game. There's no question. So just his leadership on the ice, his vocal, you know, he's he's back to being the old Drew. I think it started, maybe it didn't start with, but, you know, that, that when they did the thousand game tribute, the way he was on the ice, yeah. the way he was joking around. Yeah. And to me, it's, he's he's back to where he was. Look, he's not wearing the Norris Trophy, but he is an invaluable part of this team. So for me, the King of the Week, because of what he did emotionally for this team, would be Drew Doughty. So I was talking to uh, <clears throat> my dad. And uh, full disclosure, I did not watch the Arizona game. I was in San Diego okay. watching watching the rain play the gulls, um, okay, which so was good. a which was a trip I had planned before that game got rescheduled for that day. And I have a friend down there, so I wasn't going to do it. Um, but so I was I called my dad and was you know catching up and you know how they look, what was happening, and everything. And he said, you know, the first period was the story we all are well familiar with yes. team outplayed them, outshot them. They were, they were down three to one. And, you know, he said it's, it was right. really annoying and depressing and all those things. <laughs> um, but he said when he saw Dowdy's reaction to scoring the goal at the end of the second mm-hmm. period, if I have yep. that right. Um, yes. 
and you know, my dad's on East Coast time. So staying okay. up to watch the end of a game is not always the easiest thing. Sure. And he said like he was considering t- t- turning it off or, you know, catching it, you know, the next day on, on DVR. But he said when he saw Dowdy's reaction, yep. he knew they were going to win. Yep. And I was like, okay, that's good enough. And I mean, I saw the highlights, I saw the clips and, and, you know, it was a great reaction. Um, I unfortunately didn't have the the pleasure of watching it happen in real time, but you know, I was going to go with Kempe for King of the Week, but between talking to you, talking to my dad, yeah. I'm I'm convinced. So, congratulations, Drew Dowdy, this week's King of the Week. Now, Dennis, you said you didn't think he was going to win a Norris Trophy, and I agree with you. But I agree with you because I don't think I don't think the writers will ever give him another one, no matter how well he plays. I mean, he would have to have you know, well, a Bobby Orr-esque season to ever yeah. win another one. The, the problem is, is that you have a kid like Kale McCarr scoring 18 goals. Sure, yeah. You have Victor Hedman who, you know, just physically still dominates play. And and you saw Victor here in, against uh, the Kings mm-hmm. when Tampa came in. Like he, yeah, he with Ford defensemen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, right? So so to me, it, it, Drew would have to have an exception. And, and Jess, he's just not going to have the numbers on this team. Even when this team like, becomes a contender, which is going to be – relatively soon now when you watch mm-hmm. this team play every night they're not going to be this offensively gifted team they're not going to lead the league in scoring unless there's some total unless like three or four players emerge where they come this yeah. offensive team i just don't think that todd style doesn't dictate it like their strengths don't dictate it so to me i just don't know how he's ever going to put up those numbers and when you don't have that offensive juggernaut you're not going to be a plus 35 like some right. of these guys are right so yeah. that, i think that's the challenge that you know, Kale McCarthy in a perfect system in, in Colorado. Drew can be a guy that you want on your team if you want to win a game seven. But but from an award standpoint, from a voting standpoint, just the numbers, I don't think will ever be there again. So I, I agree with you that for the duration of his contract, it would be a long shot to win the Norris. Yeah, which is a shame because, as I've said time and time again, if he played in Canada, he'd already have a statue. He'd already <laughs> be in the Hall of Fame. But big week for Drew Doughty. We love to see it. Uh, Dennis, thank you very much for joining me. And as I said, Thanks again for all the years, not only on All the King's Men, but also on the Hockeywood Insider. Always a pleasure, Jess. Thanks for the time. Bad calls, dirty slashing. We expect a little bull on the ice. But you know when we can't stand it? When we're tracking packages. Looking up tracking numbers, shipping statuses that never get updated. We call bullshit. So we got Route. It's the free app that tracks everything you order online in one place. Route sends us real-time tracking updates, or we can pop into the app to see where our stuff is on an actual map. Download the Route app in the App Store or Google Play, or head to route.com to learn more. No bullshit, just great tracking. Scott Wheeler joins me to talk about his prospect rankings from The Athletic. Scott, how are you doing today? Doing well. Keeping busy. It's nice to be through the through the other side of the rankings, though. If I'm being completely honest, my ja- my <laughs> sure. January is always uh, it's always a whirlwind. It's a grind to get through. So I'm happy to have a little bit of breathing right now. Uh, before we hop into some of the specific players, I want to talk about um, your decision to break them up into tiers because mm. one of the things that frequently drives me crazy is when people talk about rankings and they don't ever acknowledge that there's um, methodology to rankings yeah. so even if we're talking about you know nhl standings which should be quote-unquote simple you know whoever's in second place there might be a huge gap between them and third and then yes. third and fourth might be 
essentially tied and yet we think of it as oh one two three four um so can you sort of explain your thought process behind the tiers and uh, and your decision to do that well for me honestly it's a way to quell some of the concerns and outrage that can pop up with readers <laughs> in particular sure. uh I, I see it every year when i do my draft ranking where i i can say that a kid who's third and a kid who's seventh are very close and that it's they're actually kind of neck and neck. And then still two years later, if the kid who's seventh turns into a better player, I'm hearing it from readers about how I got them all wrong and how could you have the kid who was third where you had him, that kind of a thing. So <laughs> part of it is just making it as clear and uh, sort of concise to people as I can that there are groups that are tightly congested. There are typically players who are a lot alike in terms of their ceiling and their upside. And then there are drop-offs, but the drop-offs are not happening between every slot. They're happening in bunches. And I think that gives the reader who is often unfamiliar with these kids, it also helps to give them just a, a, a stronger understanding of the depth of the pool, of each pool, of the overall quality at the top versus the wider groups that tend to fill out the bottom of the list. Uh, and really the divisions between an A prospect, a B prospect, and a C prospect, for example. So that's that's kind of the goal. Okay. And then the next question I have, um, when it comes to ranking prospects, I think the assumption, or I shouldn't speak for everybody, my assumption is always that when prospects are being graded, they're being graded as if their ceiling was Hall of Fame level at that position. So center prospects are graded against Wayne Gretzky. Defensive mm -hmm. prospects are graded against Bobby or, you know, goalie prospects are, are rated against, you know, Patrick Waugh or whoever you, you know, Dominic Hasek, whoever your goalie of choice is. Um, but the reality is that some guys come in and their ceiling is fourth line grinder. Yeah. And some of those prospects might be closer to realizing their ceiling because it's lower than some of the prospects with a higher ceiling does that factor in at all how do you how do you handle that yeah right definitely and i really think there are two ways to tackle my job there are a lot of people who do public sphere sort of prospect analysis there are several mm -hmm. sites that do it there are a lot of people who sort of do try do or try to do similar work to the kind of work that myself and my colleague Corey Promen do for example and oftentimes i think you see lists that skew towards proximity where the kids who are playing in the AHL the kids who are closest to cracking the roster, the kids who played in a few NHL games, those are the kids that tend to skew towards the top of the list. I try to approach it differently than that. I try to keep upside and ceiling at the forefront of everything that I do, because even if a kid is already a fourth line call-up option, uh, I, I still think there's more value in the potential of another kid, even if his odds are longer of becoming more, more than that, that's what you're ultimately searching for. That's what distinguishes good teams from bad teams in a league that is built on so much parity like the NHL is. So um, I've always kind of taken the stance that you can get the fourth liner or the third pairing guy or the backup goalie in free agency for a million bucks every summer. Th those guys are readily available. Teams sign them into August and September. There are still good fines to be had in terms of depth players. So I really think what's going to move the needle uh, at the sort of smaller micro level with NHL clubs is the guys who become the, the true impact guys. So you'll tend to see players who have just been drafted or players who I, I believe have high skill, high upside. You'll tend to see them ranked a little bit higher than 
say, uh, Jared Anderson Dolan, who is already, we kind of know what Jared Anderson Dolan is. So, um, that, that's kind of typically just been my MO. Yeah. I, I, think it's important to mention because again just for me personally i know i have gone back in years past and looked at previous prospect rankings um by local la writers and someone like matt roy won't be on the list the year before he cracks an nhl spot and establishes himself as a solid defensive player and you're like well that's a fascinating miss um but i guess you know again his ceiling was never going to be drew dowdy so he doesn't factor in um yeah. let's go ahead uh let's tackle this in reverse order because i think we can sort of jump through the lower tiers we don't need to go through player by player um the lowest tier you have is helenius uh nusianen atu johnson aiden dudas andre and then i'm, I'm assuming hm is honorable mention mm-hmm. uh andre lee bulat shafigulin lukash parik and uh jacob ingham yeah Let's tackle the goalies real quick on the bottom tier because goalie is sort of universally talked about as the one of the shallower parts of the Kings prospect pool. Yep. Um, why do Ingham and Parik wind up as uh, honorable mention and not say 21, 22, et cetera? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Uh, I think ultimately that's just because Though both of those goalies at this point, uh, I think, project more as kind of organizational depth than as uh, one of your two goalies. Uh, Obviously, it's much more difficult at the goaltending position to work your way into that top of the prospect pool conversation because there are only two positions available and we seldom see kids uh, at, at 20, 21, 22 who look firmly in line for that kind of a projection. It's it's very rare. There are probably seven or eight sort of legitimate high-end goalie prospects in the NHL on at any given time who I think project as 1As or 1Bs and maybe one or two who project as ones. So goalies just tend to find their way. Uh, obviously, if you've only got one or two goalies who are going to become starting goalies in my mind at any given time, then I'm doing something wrong because more goalies figure it out. But it, just in saying that, it's still extremely hard to, to put a ton of surety into something like that. It's hard for me to stamp my claim on goalies, A, because it's a position that I've never played. It's a position that I find more difficult to scout. And I try to be transparent with where my strengths and my weaknesses are. And B, just because it's such a sporadic position in terms of results. And I think Parikh uh, speaks to that a little bit. He's had some great years. He's had some up and down years. Uh, and both of them just feel like they're more likely to be the the one on an AHL team who's a third who's the call up option that kind of a, a grouping in terms of their talent level and ultimately that those are important pieces to have every NHL club needs AHL depth that they can lean on but it just doesn't feel like either of those kids are going to be one of your two goalies long term I got a bit ahead of myself but the fact that those are the only goalies on your list sort of gives me a chance to backtrack um, I wanted to yeah. talk about the fact that nine guys graduated off. Uh, your list and, and only four came in which I thought was interesting that you mentioned it right off the hop sort of anticipating that question of why the Kings would have dropped from one to two yeah um, but sort of in my to my way of thinking represented the notion that the Kings almost we, we've been talking all year long about how they have too many guys yeah and a trade I think it's a, a trade is, conversation 
coming and I anticipated it by December, then COVID and injuries hit. And I said, okay, maybe by January and then, yep. okay, maybe by February. And now we're sort of looking at the trade deadline going, all right, at some point, surely they have too many guys. Um, and, and I think that was represented in the way they handled the draft this past year, trading draft capital to, to select only four players. And those are yep. the four players that, that came in. How often do you see, that kind of shift in a team's prospect pool where nine guys graduate out and only four players join. It's pretty rare, but it's also pretty rare as, I mean, case in point that they were number one, the two previous years when I did this project, it's also pretty rare to see a team with this number of quality prospects. My list typically stop at 20 and then the very top teams, you'll get two or three honorable mentions. There was a time when I did this list where I could have listed 29, 30 Kings prospects that I felt comfortable as sort of B-grade prospects. So uh, that speaks to good competition. It's going to mean that the cream rises to the top, but it's also going to water down and on the flip side, devalue some of those players. And I think that's what makes a trade appealing because A, you need to move on from those guys when their value is high rather than low. If you let those guys fight for jobs and then you try to deal the guys who didn't make it, there's going to be a perception league-wide, whether those kids are good enough to make it or not on their own right, there will be a perception league-wide that they weren't good enough with the Kings organization. And that's an inevitability, even for players that in other organizations in thinner pools would be higher up, would get greater opportunities. Because of what the Kings pool has become, there's going to be questions that prop up about some of the kids as they struggle to, to take a limited number of jobs. So uh, and, and we're already seeing that. I mean, we're already seeing it in Gabe Boulardi as he struggles to to sort of figure it out and establish himself full time. Uh, we're seeing it in all of the promotions that you talked about. I mean, the, on one hand, it's a good thing. It's great that Arthur Kaliev is now playing and Kupari is now playing. And those guys are beginning to to you're beginning to see the benefits of what those guys look like. But on the flip side, they've now taken jobs and the guys who are below them the Alex Turcotts who are trying to climb up, it just starts to get harder and harder. And then suddenly Alex Turcotte maybe doesn't look like a fifth overall pick anymore. So uh, that is a conversation that I'm sure they're having. Uh, it's a very, I think it's a very smart intellectual front office in LA. And I think they're going to do what they can to maximize those assets. And maybe that means packaging a few of their good prospects together to try to turn three guys into one guy. Final question, and before we get into the actual players, and I, I can hear my listeners already screaming at me, shut up, get to the players. Um, but I was listening to uh, to Merrick and Elliot Friedman the other day, and they were talking, I think they were talking about Montreal, and they were talking about how long a quote-unquote rebuild ought to take and how long people think it should take. And they brought up the notion of the five-year plan, which was something that I had never really heard of in hockey before Dean Lombardi took over as GM of the Kings, and then mm -hmm. suddenly people were screaming because the five-year plan was taking too long. Of course, it took six years, but regardless. Um, he would talk about five-year plans as an evolving, ever-moving, like that every year you should be reevaluating where you are five years from now rather than saying yeah. you come in you know, on day one and then where are you five years later? That's the plan. That's it. Yeah. Um, but looking at how Lombardi turned the team around from 06 to 09 and now how Rob Blake has really turned the team around from 2019-20 to now, and looking at the Rangers timeline, how long yep. in, in, a, in a world where you have a, a draft and you have a salary cap and there are teams motivated to buy and sell, 
does it actually take longer than two or three years for a team to, if a team has really decided, okay, we're going to commit to asset, um, you know, hoarding. Yeah. Does it, does it take, does it really take longer than two or three years to, to make that transformation? Well, I think it, the big question mark there is, is what does your cap situation, uh, we can talk all you want about the talent and the prospects and what's coming, but where was your cap situation? Because I think, when we look at, and the Kings are fortunate in that they don't have really a ton of money tied up. I mean, obviously, Anze Kopitar, Drew Doughty, and there, there is still that old guard that is hanging on with them. But in saying that, they're, they're in a much better position than, say, the Buffalo Sabres were a year ago when they they didn't have assets and their cap situation was in shambles and they just paid Jeff Skinner and all of that. So um, it it's it's a complicated process. The Minnesota Wild have probably done the best sort of retool, rebuild on the fly in recent memory. The Wild were picking Matt Boldy and Marco Rossi a couple of years ago, and now they're one of the best teams in the Western Conference. And they also have a legitimate prospect pool. The Wild were, were my third-ranked prospect pool this year. So that's the best-case scenario, especially without a top-five pick. But you have to, the, the, the biggest X factor is no matter how much depth you assemble, and the Kings have the best depth in their prospect pool in the league still, uh, no matter how much depth you assemble, you have to hit on one or two significant guys. So Brant Clark and Quinton Byfield, for example, just absolutely have to work for the rebuild to work, I think, because you need those guys controlled and you need them to be stars before they get paid like stars. Uh, so those, those two guys, I think are the be all and end all. And you hate to put that much pressure on them because it's unfair to them, but as good as Kaliev and Kupari and Brock Faber and Helge Granz and all of these guys are, they aren't going to turn you into, they'll make, they'll make a contending team better, but they're not going to turn you into a, a Stanley cup contender in a league that is now increasingly driven by stars. You look at what the Colorado Avalanche look like, what the Tampa Bay Lightning look like, what the Toronto Maple Leafs now look like. All of those teams have true, true superstars. And it's pretty rare to see a team like the St. Louis Blues of a few years ago go to a, go win a Stanley Cup without a true star, which I think everybody would agree they didn't, as great as Ryan O'Reilly and Alex Petrangelo are. So, uh, yeah, they, they, they just... The, the, I think the fate of this rebuild for the Canucks or for uh, the Kings and for the Canucks uh, for the Kings will be on the success of finding one or true two true stars from this group of 25 legit prospects. And obviously the best, the best bets at that are likely Quentin Byfield and Brent Clark. All right, well, now I will just want to talk about uh, the death of the bridge contract and how that uh, impacts everything, but we don't have time for it. We're <laughs> going to jump straight into the players. Uh, I know I've, I've delayed it long enough. And so I think actually I'm going to switch my plan and now go straight from the top because uh, I've wasted everybody's time there. Um, so let's talk about Quentin Byfield. He is at the NHL now. He's playing, you know, a regular shifts for the LA Kings. Um, you have him number one on your rankings and by himself in the top tier. Uh, so what is it about Quentin Byfield that that makes him stand out to you? Well, I know it's super easy for fans to get antsy and say, okay, we dropped this kid second overall. He, he needs to be good yesterday. And obviously the injury played a part in that. And even his play in the AHL has been weird because, A, he probably should have gone back to the OHL last year. Then the OHL didn't play due to the pandemic. And it's just been a weird process for Quentin, all things considered. Um, but in saying that, 
the tools are still the tools. You, 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 you can't, you still have to look at the tools. You have to look at what he is and what he might be. And I still think what he is and what he might be is extremely exciting. There just are not very many outside of, I don't know, Nico Rantman. How, how many six foot four, six foot five players are there in the league who can make plays, have skill, uh, can carry the puck, can play in transition. They're, it's, it's a small list. It's basically Blake Wheeler and Nico Rantman. And that's, that's what every team wants. It's what every team covets. And, there's no guarantee that Quinton becomes Blake Wheeler or Miko Rantan, but I think at his at the very top of his ceiling, you're hoping that he can be a rare six foot four, six foot five forward who can produce like smaller, more skilled, sort of dynamic the the five foot eleven, six foot players that we're seeing dominate the league these days can. So that's a rare thing. And I think if he hits, that's a game changing thing for the Kings. Now it's just about getting him to that level, finding the consistency, building out his habits. And that can take time. It doesn't happen overnight for every single kid as much as we would like it to. Uh, so I, I think Quentin will get there. I think he may not be a 80 point player in the NHL. He's maybe not going to reach that Miko Ranton tier, but if he can be a, 65 70 point center that's a first line center in today's nhl that's a guy who's making eight nine million dollars a year instead of 11 12 million dollars a year and that's still a cornerstone piece so i think that's what you're hoping for out of quentin and i i do still think that's within reach for him so dropping down to your second tier you again have one guy by himself and that's brant clark what what keeps Brant Clark from being in that top tier with Quentin Byfield and how much space is there between them? Well, I don't think it's a huge amount of space, but I think ultimately what kept him out of that tier is just kind of the weirdness of Brant Clark. Uh, <laughs> we've never seen a, I've never seen, this is my ninth, this year's 2022 draft is my ninth draft doing this. Last year's draft with Clark was the eighth. And I haven't scouted a player anything like Brandt. And we did a diary series at The Athletic, as you may or may not know, on Brandt throughout his draft class where we touched base with him and he kind of led us into his life in a big way. And just in in doing that and in getting to know both Brandt and the people around him, I was not concerned one bit heading into the draft about some of the concerns that were out there among other scouts. Uh, I think any idea about him as cocky or arrogant is overstated. He's an extremely uh, confident kid. He is very sure of himself. But I think that is, are those are tremendous attributes to have. And I think more hockey players could be sure of themselves. I think a lot of hockey players act sure of themselves, but aren't truly confident and comfortable in who they are. And Brandt is every bit comfortable in who he is he wants to be a leader he wants to take charge he wants to be vocal in the locker room and on the ice he plays to command the game he plays to win he plays to take over and I want guys like that in my organization I don't uh, that that's uh, I think a, a, a character attribute rather than a character flaw uh, and maybe it rubs some people the wrong way because of the way that he carries himself but I'm a big fan of Brant his game he was obviously in my top five on my board all of last year uh, I had him as high as number three on my board uh, last year. I believe he finished third or fourth on my final uh, ranking, if I'm not mistaken. So I, I love that pick. He was my favorite defender in that class after Owen Power. Uh, and I think he's going to be a, potentially a star in the league. And even the skating issues, the knee knocking, the sort of ankle bend that he's got, it, it looks weird, but 
I, I don't think it impacts the way he plays in any serious way. And I think the Kings were smart to look past some of those things and just see a dynamic offensive defenseman who really wants to be the guy. And I think he's capable with his talent of becoming the guy. And uh, I'm really looking forward to just seeing what he becomes because I'm a huge fan of the kid and the player. And I think he's got a chance to be a, a star in the league and a true sort of power play one quarterback, which is pretty rare to find. We've got some mantras that we repeat on this podcast time and time again, and I'm thinking of adding one to the list and, and I'm still finessing the phrasing. So bear with me, but the gist of it is that you can be smart enough to overcome bad skating, but Mm -hmm. no amount of good skating will overcome being dumb. Um, I don't like using the word smart and dumb in this context because it's way too simplistic, but you know what I mean? Like if you don't know how to play hockey, you can be the most physically gifted athlete in the world and it won't matter. And if you know how to play hockey and if you have good hockey IQ, hockey sense, whatever it is, you can make up for a lack of physical gifts. And there are a couple of players in the Kings system that I think have that in spades. Um, it sounds like you think Clark is, is one of those guys, not, not to denigrate his physical ability, but just, yeah, well, absolutely. It was the same conversation we were having with Arthur Kaliev in his draft year. There was no reason that Arthur Kaliev should have been a second round pick, but because he looked like he was skating in quicksand out there and he looked like he was a little bit lazy in terms of his defensive assignments, teams suddenly talked themselves into thinking that the kid with the arguably the hardest shot in the draft didn't provide enough value as a scorer to overcome some of the negative. And I think you have to look at the positive more than the negative with those kids, because those are the tools that will carry them to the NHL. And I think you're going to see it with Kaliev when he fills the net in a more prominent role uh, as he progresses in his career. And I think you're going to see it with Brandt. And even on the skating piece with Brandt, he may not be the fastest kid in straight lines, but nobody makes players miss more than Brandt Hart. Like he's going to sidestep you and out fake you and, think you're he's going to send a message with his eyes one way and then cut back the other way as well as any defenseman in junior hockey so uh i have i have a ton of faith in brant and his ability and the athleticism is the athleticism sure he he's not going to dunk a basketball he's not going to have a 10 foot sort of vertical or anything like that like he's He's not a great athlete. He'll tell you that. His strength coach, Tony Greco, will tell you that. But he's made huge huge progress there. And he, he's at a great, a good enough level as an athlete that the rest of his tools will, will set him apart. All right, we're going to jump into tier three now. And we're going to start at, uh, quote unquote, the bottom of the tier, I guess. Because Brant Clark is a right shot defenseman. And there are three more right shot defensemen in tier <laughs> tier three, which has six guys in it. Um, and for those of you counting at home, four right shot defensemen is uh, usually one too many um, for an NHL roster. And the Kings already have Drew Doughty, uh, Sean Walker, Matt Roy, Sean Dersey, uh, some other players. So uh, Helge Granz, Brock Faber, and Jordan Spence. And Jordan Spence and Helge Granz are already in Ontario. Brock Faber may join Ontario next season. Um, you have Grons at five. Potentially late this season. Yes, that is also possible. You have Grons yeah. at five, Faber at seven, Spence at eight. Uh, yeah. What kind of gap are we looking at between those three guys? And uh, and do you? Th- this is sort of a separate floating question, but how clever do you think it was of the Kings to load up on right hand D, which is the sort of unicorn of the hockey world? 
yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a great problem to have, and one that every other organization, maybe outside the New York Rangers, who have comparable depth in terms of young pieces on their blue line with Lundqvist and Keandre Miller and Adam Fox and Braden Schneider, you go down the list, Zach Jones. Uh, outside of the Rangers, that's it's it's a premium, and they have it. And all three of those kids, I think, are extremely close, sort of neck and neck in terms of where I'm at on them. Obviously, I think Brock Faber would probably be the consensus kind of darling of that group, if you were to sort of ask a, a group of scouts for their favorite of that three. Brock would be the clear favorite. Uh, but I still think those other two are are, are right there with him. Um, Helge obviously has the size piece that Brock and and Jordan lack, and not just the size piece, but he plays a very confident game. And I actually like Grand's best when he's playing to attack and not playing to be the defensive guy that maybe we expect longer, bigger defensemen to be uh, anecdotally. So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Gons. I was a big fan of his in his draft year. I thought he was a first round pick in that draft class. And uh, I, I think he's got real potential as a sort of second pairing ceiling guy. And I feel the same way about Spence and Faber. I, I don't think any either of those guys are going to be a number one or a number two. They're not going to be a Drew Doughty. I don't think they have the talent level of a Grant Clark. But in saying that, if if you can get two of those three guys to give you 19, 19 and a half minutes a night, that is a big deal, especially because they're righties. And I think all three of those guys are going to prove capable of playing in the NHL. And then you're absolutely right with Sean Dersey and Sean Walker. Suddenly you've got a problem in terms of depth at right defense and a very good problem to have because I'm a big fan of Sean Walker and Sean Dersey as well. Uh, my colleague and I, Lisa Dillman, are actually working on a feature on on Walker. Um, it, yeah, so I don't know. It's it's a good group. All of those guys are good. Spence, I think, is the most underrated of those three. I think Jordan Spence is outstanding. Like he is a fabulous hockey player and a kid that I absolutely adored watching in the QMJHL. Uh, so uh, I, I almost wonder whether he might get caught in the crossfire a little bit, just because. Grands looks different and Faber is the shinier, glossier prospect at this point. But Spence is is legit, man. And I think he could play in the NHL tomorrow and be just fine. So uh yeah, it, it's a it's a good group for sure. Spence and Grands are fascinating. They both came in as rookies this year in Ontario, and I think they were both expected to sort of split time and and be slowly worked into the lineup. And then mm-hmm. Drew Doughty got hurt, Sean Walker got hurt. <laughs> um you know, Sean Dersey got called up and suddenly the two of them were pressed into action. And it's almost a shame. I mean, it's, you know, first floor problems, I suppose. But if Spence weren't having the season he were having, I feel like we'd be talking about Grands as this pleasant surprise um, yeah. as the younger of the two. But Jordan Spence is having an incredible season. And to your point about hoping to get 19 minutes a night out of two of those three guys, unfortunately, um, if you're getting 19 minutes out of two of those three guys, it means that Brand Clark hasn't hit uh, because, <laughs> because now he's not going anywhere. Um, and so that's just, it's a ton of, I mean, it's, it's insane. Fortunately, the left-hand side is uh, again, another shallow part of the pool. And so I'm, I'm doing mental gymnastics, trying to figure out, well, could you put Walker on left with Roy and then yep. <laughs> and sort of making yep. it last as long as possible. Um, let's talk about two centers in that third tier. Alex Turcott, you have ranked third on the Kings list, and Gabe Velarde, uh, sorry, Gabriel Velarde ranked fourth. Now, Velarde's playing in Ontario. They're switching him to wing, so it's sort of not fair to include him 
as a center, but mm-hmm. um, he's having an incredibly strong season. And Alex Turcotte, while maybe not putting up points, every time I watch him, he looks incredibly effective. What was uh, ha- What's the gap between Brant Clark and Alex Turcotte, between that second and that third tier? And uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Turcotte and Velarde? And Turcotte may incidentally also have to make the switch to wing someday. Yes, I was, I was going to touch on that, but... It- I would say the gap between Brandt and, and Alex is more pronounced than the gap between Quinton and Brandt. Uh, okay. He's, uh, ter- ter- I was a big fan of Turcotte, another kid. He was third, fourth on my list. Really liked that pick. Thought he was fabulous in his draft year. Spent some time with him during an embed story that I did with the Wisconsin Badgers during his post-draft season when he was dealing with a knee injury. I don't even think people realize the breadth of the injuries and the illnesses that he dealt with during both his draft year and his post-draft season at the University of Wisconsin. So there has been a lot more to the Alex Turcotte story than just the the numbers and him not yet being a full-time NHLer and all of that. So uh, I, I like Turcotte a lot as a player. He's a very high energy player. He plays with a lot of pace. I think he's got more playmaking uh, sort of flair than we've seen to date. And I think he's going to be more productive as a playmaker than we've seen to date. Uh, but his his projection has certainly downgraded for me. I saw him as a clear top six center uh, in his draft year and even in parts of his uh, post-draft season. And today, I think you're more likely looking at a second line player or kind of a middle six guy who moves up between the second and third line. I still think you're going to see him on a top power play unit and see him contributing offensively and see him as an important piece of, of a top nine. But I think he's not likely going to be a first line player at this point. And I do think that that is at least semi disappointing when you're using a top five asset on a player, because that typically is the expectation. So uh, I still think he's going to be a fabulous player, but I do think Grant and Quinton have a chance to be true stars in the league. And I don't anymore, at least see quite that kind of upside in, in Alex. We talked about earlier before we got into the player by player talk, we talked about um, ceilings versus, you know, likely path to any spot in the NHL. The Kings mm-hmm. get Victor Arvidsson, they get Deneau. That clogs some spots, right? That changes the math on on timelines and paths to the NHL for a lot of these players. Does that factor in at all, you know, into the, the rankings? A guy like Alex Turcotte or, or Gabriel Velarde, right? 2C is no longer available for the Kings. And with Byfield and yeah. Kopitar, presumably 1 and 3C are no longer available. So suddenly that changes, you know, the strategy, the equation, the timeline for a bunch of players. D- does that play a role at all in any of these? Definitely. And I, I didn't touch on, I didn't touch on Velarde there really, but Velarde, uh, I, I, another kid who I was, I think he was fourth or fifth on my board when they took him away. It was 11th that he was mm-hmm. drafted in. Yeah. So uh, again, big fan of Velarde in his draft year. Thought he was fabulous in Kingston. Thought he was one of the better players in the OHL throughout his career. And then injuries, as has been the case with so many of the Kings, popped up. And then he showed signs out of the injury and really looked like he was an NHL player. And then for whatever reason, the coaching staff kind of fell out of favor with him or he just didn't play up to standard and the depth chart got deeper and Dano got brought in like it just it started to crowd him a little bit he became the victim and I think he's a better player than an than an AHL player like I think in several other organizations around the NHL right now you'd see Velarde contributing in a top nine role whether at center or on the wing and being an everyday guy so I would like to see him get back there and see the Kings 
give him an, another look like that, which they had given him a, a season and a half ago. Uh, so yeah, it, I, I still have faith in Velarde, but he is starting to feel like a change of scenery candidate, if you will. It, it does. I don't know. If I'm him, I, I want to be playing at this point. And in the same way that Cody Glass wanted a change of scenery in Vegas when he started to drift down the depth chart or Nolan Patrick after his injuries in Philadelphia, it just feels like Velarde's kind of inching towards that kind of a conversation potentially with the Kings of, okay, I, I deserve to play. I've shown well enough at the AHL level uh, and prior throughout my junior career to be regarded as as a legit prospect even as i'm getting older now and if I, if we can't make it work here it, maybe it's best for me to play elsewhere and he's not the type of kid to ask that but uh that i'm sure it's something that has crossed his his mind and the mind of his camp yeah and at this point 29 points in 28 games um in ontario yeah. this season uh, he is having a great season um before we jump down one more tier there's one last player in this uh third tier and that's uh Samuel Fagamo I really like this kid and there's one reason and one reason only and it's not scientific or analytical at all it's that when I see him play he's one of the few players in the system that when I'm watching him he will bang his stick aggressively on the ice bark for the puck and when it gets to him he shoots it within a nanosecond of it getting to him and it's almost always a good shot if not a goal and you know to your point about Clark and his confidence and how more players could benefit from that I I just love watching that and one more story about Fogma there was a a close contact drill that they were doing you know they moved the nets very close together and they're doing this practice back and forth back and forth and his team won and he reacted as if his team had just won the Stanley Cup. And mm-hmm. and I see that from him all the time. So I have a gigantic soft spot in my heart for uh, for Fagamo. W- what's your take on him and uh, and where you put him on the list? Well, the talent's there. And the question with him was always, okay, he, he's this natural shooter. So is Arthur Kaliev. And it's the same conversation they're having now with Turcotte and Bilardi, where suddenly you get multiple players at multiple positions and things get crowded and you have to try and figure out do we have is two of is two of those shot first sort of goals natural goal scorers too much? Do we want a bit of a different look? Do we want a heavier look? Do we want more speed? Neither of those kids are burners in terms of their skating. Obviously, certainly Arthur Kaliev isn't a great skater. Um, so all of that begins to sort of enter the conversation. And ultimately, where does it leave Fagamo? It leaves him as a, an extremely entertaining player in the AHL who can put the puck in the net and regularly flashes the kind of skill that says, okay, when you're watching this kid, that's an NHL skill set. Uh, so I think that's still true. And I still think he'll figure it out. It's just a question of who does it come at the expense of? Where does he fit into the lineup? Do they want him and Arthur Kaliev potentially on the same power play unit long-term, or would they like them on different power play units? All of those things are questions that they're going to have to answer internally. Uh, but the shot is there. Obviously, he can really get rid of it. He's got great hands. Uh, looks very different in terms of style from Kaliev, but the, the end result is that they're both goal scorers. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what they do with those guys and how they make it all work. And maybe you put one guy on the left side and the other guy on the right side and you play off their off wings. And I don't know what the simple answer is, but I, I do think there's room enough for, for Fagamo to 
to graduate up within the next year or so and to become a, a top nine scorer. So we're going to jump down into the fourth tier and rather than go through every player, um, cause we'd be here all day. Um, there's eight players in this fourth tier, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to pick one that I'd like you to talk about. And then I'm going to ask okay. you to pick one that you'd like to talk about. The player that I'm most curious about is uh, Kirsinov. Um, the left left D is uh, again, a very shallow part of the prospect pool, partially because Bjornfoot and Anderson have graduated and they're mm-hmm. what, 20 and 22. So, I mean, they would be prospects if they weren't NHL players. So it's shallow part of the pool, but also probably one of the contrary to what the fan base might suggest. um, One of the least, one of the lowest priorities as far as acquiring players to fit that spot. So let's talk about Kirsanov. What are his strengths and, and what's his path to the NHL? Yeah. Kirsanov's a kid who, again, really impressed me last year. I thought he was fabulous at the world juniors. I thought that Russian defense at last year's world juniors was a bit of a disaster. And Kirsanov was really the one defender on that group who exceeded expectations, who played well, who impressed scouts. He's a kid who just plays a comfortable, smooth kind of puck flows through him, modern style of, of hockey. And increasingly, a lot of their defensemen play like that. I mean, Brock Faber and Jordan Spence certainly qualify in the same kind of stylistic nature as well. So Kirsanov's he's good in neutral ice. He sidesteps pressure. He breaks pucks out effectively. He walks the line effectively. He's not dynamic. He doesn't have that quality that a Brant Clark has. But he just plays a smooth, polished, effective brand of hockey. And increasingly, that's what a lot of NHL defensemen look like nowadays. We've gone away from the big brawny brawling types. And we've also in many respects gone away from matching one of those big brawny types with a super dynamic high risk player. And now you're often just seeing pairings of two defensemen who are just good and effective hockey players who make simple plays and advance the puck up the ice and uh, sort of execute all over, all over the ice. So I, I think that's what Kirsanov is. He's just a, a good sort of modern defenseman and if he becomes an nhl player that probably limits him as more of a four to six guy than a one to three guy for sure he doesn't have that kind of upside but every organization needs good smooth third pairing guys and if he can become that for them i think that's a win i was literally just going to say the phrase hey every every team needs a third pair defenseman (laughs) Um, yeah you know matt matt green was never going to confuse anybody um for drew dowdy and yet you know, they don't win the cup twice without him. So yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's my hope. So, so out of those uh, remaining seven players in that fourth tier, Madden, Pinelli, Chromiak, Seaman Tyvel, Anderson, Dolan, Thomas, and uh, Laferriere, is there one player that, uh, that pops out in your mind that you'd like to talk about? Well, there's probably two Chromiak and Simon Tyvel. Uh, okay. I wrote a feature on Chromiak at this year's world juniors and got to know him a little bit through that process. And, uh, he's a kid who I've always been a big fan of, a shooting winger who has a lot of speed, plays really fast, can really skate, uh, and does a good job getting, increasingly does a good job getting off the perimeter and getting to the inside with that speed and looking to attack instead of playing kind of passively like he once did. So Chromiak's obviously had a fabulous year in the OHL. He's one of the more entertaining forwards uh, in the OHL. Uh, can can shoot it on the power play. I, I think there might be a, a top nine winger there eventually. 
uh, again, it's he's got a, got a big crowd of people he's going to have to climb over in front, and not all of these kids are going to work out. But I think Chromiak will be very good AHL depth as a top AHL player at the very least. And I do see NHL upside in his game. So he's a kid that I'd keep an eye out on. And then Simon Tyvel, I've got a soft spot for the five foot nine playmaker who goes to the dirty areas. And Simon Tyvel certainly qualifies as kind of a diminutive kid and not a, not a great skater. And typically scouts get really wary when you have a small kid who also isn't fast. Uh, but again, just navigates the ice, knows how to make plays can make a lot happen on the perimeter with his ability to control the puck and pass the puck, but also goes to the front of the net, bangs in a lot of goals and can play off of, off of his line mates effectively. So those are two kids where, again, if you get into a group where if there are three, four wingers, three, four forwards that look the same, if you're hitting on one or two of those three or four long-term, that's a huge success story for you. So they kind of fit into that mold where you don't expect them to make it. You don't expect a Chromiak or a Simon Tyvel to make it in the same way that you expect a Kark and a Turcotte and a Kaliev to make it. But if, if, if they do hit, they're, they're interesting. They're likely going to be interesting pieces of the puzzle. So, uh, both those are probably the two kids I would highlight. That drops us down to our final tier, uh, Hellenius, Nusian, and Johnson, Dudas, Jamson, Johnson, uh, Dudas, Andre Lee, and then uh, the honorable mentions, or I guess Andre Lee is an honorable mention. Um, so before we wrap up, just one uh, question about Hellenius. My understanding, when he was drafted, the rhetoric was sort of like, okay, this guy's a, your third line center. Um, so when you have a guy who's taken with that sort of clear um, – identity identity is not the word i want to use but like he has there's a there's a spot in the puzzle that he fits into there's no you know when chromiak was taken in the fifth everybody was like oh wow he fell down but you know huge upside this could be a steal etc blah 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 when elanius was taken it's like okay that's a bottom six player yeah um so when it comes to ranking him or when it comes to evaluating him is part of his placement in that tier because you know his skill set his playing style like his career path is sort of not that he couldn't i suppose surprise everybody and and achieve more but that sort of the expectation on him is lowered yes yeah i think that's a big part of it and that's not to downplay that downplay his talent or anything like that he's a very unique player you don't see six foot six forwards in the nhl these days you don't see kids that big in the nhl these days especially at forward they're much more commonly defensemen uh, there aren't many Brian Boyles, Kevin Hayes, those sort of uh, big towering wingers or centers in the league. But Hellenius is interesting because you expect those kids, because they get that bottom six moniker, you expect them to chip and chase and give and go and not to hang on to the puck. And he's actually a kid who really likes to have the puck on his stick, which fascinates me because you rarely see players that big who are comfortable in possession and who want to make plays. And Hellenius does. And I've seen him make great, great plays with smaller players on his line mates and keep up with them and not just be the plug and play, give and go sort of meat and potatoes guy. I actually don't think that's really his game at all. And he doesn't have that menacing physical quality that big players like that sometimes do either. He's not his dad. His dad was obviously, I hate to say the word goon, but his dad was a fighter. His dad was a one of those guys who was typecast. And I don't think Hellenius wants to be that. And He's certainly not perceived that way in Sweden. I mean, they've given him captaincies. They've trusted him with the leadership of his age group internationally. And he plays with 
top players when he plays on those international teams. He's not playing the third line role for those guys. He's playing with Brad Lambert and Billy Koivinen and the guys who have all the skill. So uh, th- that that fascinates me. I, I, I'm a big fan of Hellenius. And yeah, maybe because of his size and the, some of the limitations that come with that size as a forward, maybe he doesn't become a top of the lineup, highly productive player. But I do think he's talented enough to potentially get to the NHL. And that's not something that I say about many players that size. Final question before we let you go. Heading into this next draft, the Kings, you know, as we said, there's too many guys at almost every position. Um, at this Except point, goalie, really. There well, is, that's yeah. exactly where I'm going with that. Is at this point, I know there aren't any uh, Kosas or Wallstets in this coming draft, or at least none that I've heard about. Um, would would it be a smart strategy from your perspective for the Kings to focus uh, extra attention and dedicate extra draft capital towards? focusing on a specific position, whether it's goalie, left defense, whatever it might be. Certainly they've got to figure it out in that. Uh, mm-hmm. Every team needs to figure that out. The The Sabres are a very good example of a team that has had ever since Ryan Miller left major questions in that and have in the last couple of years gone out and got Devin Levi and Eric Portillo and Uko Pekalukinen. And they've made sure that one of those three guys is going to hit and they're going to have a starting goalie or if not a starting goalie, then a, a, a 1A. And I think it would be incumbent on the Kings for this next chapter uh, as they try to build into uh, the contending team that they were a decade ago to to take a similar route and to make finding a great goalie a, a major priority. And internally, they just don't have that right now. And this draft class doesn't have that either. Uh, really, I mean, Ben Goudreau is probably my favorite goalie prospect in this draft class. Um and he's not that guy either. And even Brett Brochu, who I quite like, uh, is an overager. And so there, there, there's not a lot of that in this upcoming draft class. And frankly, there isn't any of it really in 2023 either. Uh, as great as 2023 is, I think 2023 is going to be one of the best drafts we've ever seen. There, There isn't a first round goalie or a, even a early second round goalie prospect in that draft class, at least not this early on in the process. So it's a... Uh, it's a tricky game because they've got to find it elsewhere, I think. And that's going to require not only dedicating assets to going out and getting one guy, but probably trying to find two or three guys and hoping that one of those two or three guys can become the guy because it's just such a risky position to try and find talent in. I hear that. And yet every time I turn around, I'm seeing another rumor about uh, Florida offering Knight and Lindell um, for somebody. (laughs) And you know, the sort of joke I made, but I wasn't even really joking. Somebody was suggesting that uh, Florida might offer Lindell and Knight for Chikrin. And the question was, should the Kings try and uh, outbid Florida? And I just sort of thought like, well, why are we trying to outbid Florida? Why aren't we trying to outbid Arizona? I'd rather rather have Lindell and Knight than than Chikrin. Um, Well, Spencer Knight's certainly that guy. He's certainly that future guy, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd I be pretty surprised if they moved on from those guys, even if they are all in to win a cup this year in Florida. Mm-hmm. But uh, those are two of the, I don't know, 20 best young players in the sport as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. All right, Scott, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. And uh, everybody should check out your work on The Athletic if you don't already subscribe. And uh, best of luck to you in all of your professional endeavors uh, in writing and otherwise. Thanks, Jesse. 